Birmingham and welcome to the Tops Pod. My name's Peter Stockham and it's a very special episode today because we're here being recorded at the 57th annual TF meeting here in Birmingham. Uh, first, I have to say it's an honour to be here at TF. And many thanks to Simon and the organising committee and also the TF board for their support of the, the ToxPod project. Now, unfortunately, Tim couldn't make it today, uh, but luckily for us, we've got Sarah Villa and Luke Rodder, and they've agreed to come on to have a bit of a chat as our special guests. Please make them welcome. Uh, so most of you will know Sarah, and she's one of the TF Bulletin editors. She works as a forensic toxicologist at NICC in Brussels, and she's a president of the TF um, Young Scientists Committee. And of course, Luke Rodder is formerly of Australia, uh, is now chief toxicology uh, Chief Toxicologist and Director of the San Francisco Laboratory, and he's also on the Young Scientist Committee. Now, you've both been very busy this week. You started out on Monday organising a symposium, before that preparing some, a couple of talks that you had to do, so we really appreciate you coming in and being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. That's yeah, good. thanks. Yeah. So um, let's get on to see what's been happening this week. What sort of things have we learned? I think there were lots of interesting topics passed by this week. Um, some metabolomic stuff, activity-based essays, um, all kinds of interesting talks about new compounds we have to look, off, uh, look, look in our casework. So really interesting work. Yeah, I think the, uh, the smart and efficient way that uh, has been you know, offered as a way to look for these novel psychoactives is a really uh, great way to move forward. Um, obviously with, you know, 700 or so plus novel psychoactives out there, um, it's really challenging just to target every one. And so some, having some of these markers and, and ideas is fantastic for laboratories to get started or to be able to continue to monitor these drugs. Mm -hmm. And so these meetings are really important for that because some of these, uh, like the MDMB synthetic cannabinoids, often you can't even see the parents and come to these meetings here. We're always talking about the new ones, and that's very important. I, I don't get to go to many... Um, well, I'm not devoted enough, I guess, to come to all TF meetings like some other people are. <laughs> but um, every time I come to one, I'm just stunned by the amount of information that gets stuffed into my head and I find it hard to remember all of it. But um, you can remember things, you learn things that are just interesting and other things that you actually need for your work. Uh, so some examples of things that probably I won't need are the fact that if you see a, a coconut crab eating a pong pong tree, <laughs> probably better not eat it because you'll die from cardiac glycosides. But... Um, there's just so many things, things like BHB and acid, um, diabetic ketoacidosis, and there's actually an inborn metabolism error that can cause uh, GHB intoxication. I never knew about before, so that was interesting. And, but I also think it's very important to see, you know, the faces of the people in the field, not only like you get to read papers, but when you get into contact with everybody, that's actually when projects start mm -hmm. yes. uh, and ideas come up. So I think that's uh, really a plus to join a meeting uh, such as TF. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, um, you know, the, the treasurer of TF and Robert Constrand gave a great mentor talk at the Young Symposium explaining just that, explaining some of the uh, collaborations that his team has had with Professor Marilyn Hustis from the US and other people around the world. Um, and I think that's just uh, such a benefit. Uh, typically, when we're talking about these drugs or these certain um, issues in t forensic toxicology, that may only be region-specific, but then maybe they're not. Maybe uh, they're first seen in a region, but then other regions uh, start looking at it or looking into this and then observe the same issues in their own laboratories. Exactly right. So on um, Monday, we had the Young Scientists Symposium. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what that's all about? 
Well, uh, the Young Scientist was actually created to get a kind of platform uh, for the younger uh, to not feel too intimidated, especially in their first meeting. So, and just to get to know each other, make a kind of, yeah, I would say a network um, of young scientists to just discuss their projects, what they're doing with their PhD, and um, yeah, to get to know everybody. And to also make contact with maybe some older getting young mm -hmm. scientists and in even the board and during lunch. Um, and especially we always make up a symposium and it's kind of a mixture between like scientific presentations, but also presentations that can help them develop their career or like some management stuff or just, yeah, how to, how to create a research group. So all kinds of tools are actually given to, to the young scientists to develop. Yeah. I think anecdotally for myself, at least, uh, very nervous, of course, the first, uh, TF. Um, and, uh, even though I had, you know, great mentors and Dimitri and Olaf that, you know, were there, of course, in the meetings, but still your first meeting is such an, a daunting, uh, process, or at least it was for myself. And so we do believe in that at least some portion, uh, probably a significant portion of the, uh, first timers of, uh, TF or even their second or third and young scientists, uh, really, um, it's the start of the meeting and they get to feel a bit more comfortable immediately at the start of the meeting. Yeah, good icebreaker. Yeah. And then, of yeah. course, you have a, um, try to have a couple of social events during the week and the ice is well and truly broken. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> uh, you'd had a lot of young scientists this year, I think. Uh, I think there were 200 uh, that were registered for the meeting and I believe there were about 100, 150 present at the Young Scientists Symposium. Yeah, it's a really yeah. good turnout. Mm -hmm. So maybe a almost a third of this, the entire symposium. Yeah, that's no, fantastic. So, um, one of the loose themes of this conference is what will toxicology need to detect in the 21st century? So, um, what do you think we should look out and look out for and how has it changed? Well, I, I, when I remember well, uh, about 10 years ago, I think the first TF meetings I went to, the focus was largely put on having good validations, uh, thinking about measurement uncertainty, you know, get the adequate number out uh, in your data. And of course, this is of major importance, but I think now we're slightly moving on to what does this number actually mean? What can we do with it? How we can get better casework, uh, all kinds of questions about interpretation um, are getting out there. And I, I think like you can see it, the metabolomics, looking for targets, Activity essays, all those things are actually going for a better interpretation and understanding of what that good number actually means. Yeah. And so, of course, the validation is always happening in the background nowadays, mm -hmm. whereas um, maybe my first TF back in 2003, it was, uh, there were some presentations that got up and they were told, where's the validation data? Yeah. We want to see the validation data. But now I think... Everybody, Everyone. I think the message Everyone. got through, and uh, it's, it's of course it's, it still remains uh, of utmost importance. Mm -hmm. But um, that's something you can also see in this meeting that I think more and more presentations are really about how can I use these data to get yeah, yeah better so insight in, in all the processes. I think the Sweet Talks Committee and uh, you know, the Peters paper, you know, these are um, really pivotal papers for validation, and then over the years explain the importance of this and workshops of validation um, have really made it just now normal and routine, which is what it should be in our industry. And so just an example of um, influence of a young scientist on toxicology. Frank Peters was a young scientist mm -hmm. when he won uh, Best Paper at, in Melbourne. 
in oh. 2003, if I remember rightly. So, oh. so that paper was hugely influenced in um, toxicology. Mm -hmm. So, that's great. Yeah, I mean, and also I think the uh, one of the things I think in the future that's looking like we're moving towards is also this interpretation, as Sarah mentioned, but looking specifically at you know post mortem redistribution and maybe having a bit more um, answers to that about what these results mean looking at certain you know, markers um, you know, uh, for specific drugs or, or the, the general post-modern distribution of a certain case. I think that's really interesting to help us interpret these cases uh, in death investigation and help our pathologists. Yep, so post-modern redistribution is still the most uncertain thing about post-modern tox, isn't it? It's really... Uh... Right, I, I think it's always... I mean, one of the things I often say is, is the analytical uncertainty now is reduced so much for post-mortem casework. It's, it's now the, you know, the post-mortem uncertainty, the self of the, uh, the, in, in the case. And I think that's something that we always have to consider for post-mortem casework. That's good. Um, so another thing, um, I did notice that years ago there used to be, uh, not even years ago, until recently there was almost an entire stream of the, top of the conference would have been uh, alternative matrices. So there might have been and in those sessions, we'd have talk about oral fluid and you'd talk about hair. There might have been a few nail ones back then, but they're always just accepted as they're not alternative, they're just another matrix, aren't they? Now, so yeah, yeah that's I one thing that's definitely I changed. think so too. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that the you know, the, there was not even a session this year. I think that it's just become accepted that it's um, you know, available tools for us to to find drugs in, in these casework. Yeah, I think I actually recall Simon saying that in his pitch mm -hmm. when, he, <laughs> yeah. when he was trying to get the, the bid in. Um, so there's a lot of it talk about NPS, and we often spend a lot of time on it. And, you know, it seems pretty sexy, and it's good fun, to be honest with you. We're living in a golden age for toxicologists. Back in the old days, there was just four <laughs> or five drugs that we looked for, illicit drugs, and uh, it's, of course it's got a terrible community toll. Please don't. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it provides a fa fascinating uh, work for us and, and really interesting work, but it's a huge uh, toll and resource for yes. the laboratories and a, a huge challenge for the community to then support um, us laboratories and, and, and provide those resources. Yeah, so one thing we've found that there's actually less new MPSs coming out, less, less variety, but there's still more volume. Is that what your interpretation is of what's been happening? I, I think so. I think we saw, um, you know, the... the, the Pivotal paper or poster, of course, of the um, each year of the, the 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 new drugs coming out, and uh, we see it decreasing, of course. Um, but it's still it's still there. I think it's still averaging just over one a week. Yeah. Um, that slide was only shown a couple of times during this week, and it used so used to be every slide. Used to be every slide. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's still there. And we, you know, I think now that um, there's lots of countries and lots of regions that need to catch up um, still yep. they're still prevalent i know that it's an issue in the u.s that uh, the majority of of laboratories just aren't um, necessarily screening for these compounds at they all not be even equipped to, to manage them yeah. there's a huge i mean there's huge issues obviously with just the fentanyl epidemic and you know laboratories just trying to um, be able to detect fentanyl uh, at the rate of these decedents coming in with overdose, and so sometimes you know you need to, as a as a laboratory, they need to really um, manage what's most important just to keep up with the, the casework. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I think it also depends from region to region. You already see a big difference. Like um, in, in Belgium, we often see more cocaine and ecstasy like the classical ones. But still, we have to be aware that there are NPSs and, and you have to adapt your analytical strategy in the lab to make sure you can detect them. But you can see like all, like in, in the US, it's in more the fentanyls. But uh, depending on which country you are and, mm -hmm. and which region, um, there seem to be some trends, but of course we always have to look out for new things coming on the drug market. Yeah, I mean, and TF has an MPS committee that will be doing you know, some more work with this again um, with their partnerships with the UNODC, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's been quite successful so far, I think. So every, for those unaware, every TF member has got an opportunity to log into the UNODC uh, what is portal, the EWA, yeah. Early Warning Advisory yeah. Portal. Mm -hmm. uh, to get advice on new substances and contribute to. So. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be very interesting because there, as a lab, there are a lot of uh, things to tackle. You need to have, uh, yeah, uh, adequate equipment, but also reference standards often often miss, and just get the knowledge in house to be be aware of all those uh, things happening and targets you have to monitor. It's not always easy so to keep up. Speaking of reference standards, what the, the EPA, no, the DEA mm -hmm. in America, they've released uh, fentanyl kits with uh, hundreds and hundreds of fentanyl analytes just to send, uh, not for quantitative purposes, but just to assist laboratories get them into their screens. I think that's magnificent. Yeah, it was um, a certain vendor who uh, supplied that, and uh, that can be you know easily researched and obtained if you, of course, have a DEA license right. to to receive those spec um, those reference material in your laboratory. But yeah, it was a it's a great tool to provide laboratories with a qualitative material to be able to uh, at least you know get these uh, libraries into their own uh, libraries for their own you know, instruments yeah. and start screening, which is fantastic initiative. And I think that our president, Mark LeBeau, was a big part of helping with that. Okay. And the reason why it's so important is because uh, unlike uh, in a lot of drug seizure world, in the drug seizure laboratories, they use GCMS. And they've got very easy to share libraries. There's um, the, the Cayman GCMS library, which has got all of their standards that they make, uh, not specifically saying, not giving any endorsement to Cayman, but also the SWIG drug library, all the libraries mm -hmm. uh, all the brochures pull their resources and give uh, spectra to this central library which you can download. But LCMS, which is what most toxicology labs need to detect these low concentrations, just haven't got that sort of resource. So giving them standards is really the only way they can build their own library. So it's solving a very important problem, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, the, the opioid crisis in the US, I don't know if we want to talk about that too much. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Oh, I mean, um, you know, it realistically was only probably uh, slightly touched on really um, at TF this year, mm -hmm. um, considering it's the weight of the problem um, over in the USA. But I think it is it is well known. It's well described. Uh, what isn't uh, something that, you know, um, we're trying to describe more is the issue on the West Coast. Um, it's predominantly been seen as a huge East Coast problem, and it certainly has. But in the last year or two, the West Coast now is sort of caught up and is following the same line of huge increases in fentanyl overdoses over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, lots of laboratories in, the, in California and on the West Coast have been somewhat surprised by some of the results that, you know, we've been pushing out, at least in San Francisco, to demonstrate that. And I don't think it's just a San Francisco issue. I think it's across the board. But I think that there's a lot of issues... Um, 
when you look at the medical examiner, the coroner um, system over there, um, how cases are being autopsied if they go to toxicology testing, and if they do go to toxicology testing, are they even looking at fentanyl routinely and at the limits of detection required? So there's a multifaceted issue, yeah. and uh, there's a statewide task force um, just looking at that in California and trying to realise and demonstrate the, the problem. And so it's trying to get a more consistent testing across as many people as they can, is that the idea? Yeah, yeah I think it has to be. Um, you know, uh, there's lots of counties in, in California, and so each region has its its own regime um, with its own, whether it be coroner, sheriff, or medical examiner. It's a very different system um, county to county. Yeah. In Australia, we, we have had a quite a significant increase in uh, opioid deaths. There's a recent um, media, a uh, bunch of media articles about it. Um, but we haven't got had anywhere near the, the issues with the fentanyl crisis that you've had in the US. But just recently I heard, well, because of these notifications about you know, the looming opioid crisis, they've been advising doctors to cut back on prescriptions of, of opioids, which might actually have been one of the triggers mm -hmm. for the crisis in America anyway. So let's hope they do it in a sensible way and learn some lessons. Yeah, I mean, um, I definitely came across casework of um, you know, an individual who has been on, uh, let's say, hydrocodone for 10 years and then is immediately cut off, um, whether it be by the doctor, but also the insurance company. Uh, and then, unfortunately, what's their options? Well, the grey market, they try to source maybe um, prescription medication. But after that, um, they often turn to the um, street and listed market. And uh, it's just Russian roulette at the moment. They don't know if they're getting heroin, fentanyl, how pure the fentanyl is. It's, we've had a wave of very pure fentanyl come through. And uh, unfortunately, these individuals are succumbing to these effects. Yeah, and there's also been adulteration of um, other stimulant drugs with fentanyl mm -hmm. from reports of read. Yeah, we've seen a, a range of uh, cases now the last two years with methamphetamine um, in, being included, well, fentanyl being included in the methamphetamine and fentanyl being included in the cocaine. And that's, of course, uh, really devastating for you know, these users who are opioid naive and then all of a sudden they get a significant dose of fentanyl. And we've seen waves of um, these come through. And in fact, uh, we work hard with the local Department of Public Health and the community workers on the streets to alert them of these deaths as they come in by the day. And uh, they've been giving you know, naloxone um, immediately the next day to these cocaine or methamphetamine users. And we actually see a reduction in deaths um, almost overnight, which is a fantastic initiative, but um, very concerning still that... It's happening. Yep. So this is um, moving on to sharing of data. We might want to talk about that now. So this timely communication is, is vital. And most places don't really have that infrastructure built there already. It has to be, uh, they have to make an effort to go out and create those relationships. So um, in a couple of places in Australia where they're trying to increase, improve um, relationships between clinical physicians, between police officers and forensic labs, and that sort of data sharing is extremely important. But the problem, of course, often is that uh, in forensic and legal circumstances, we, we are restricted from sharing data. It's all privacy. So, and it might take two years for a coronial case to go through. So obviously there has to be some um, compromise by the coroners and those sort of people to allow us to release results earlier than uh, not necessarily identified results, but data. But I think it's sometimes also important to like... Um, 
like make people aware of some things um, in the sense, as I said already in Belgium, it, it, they often think only classical drugs are there. But then, for example, in our drugs and driving population, we only will monitor for classical drugs. So we still have to keep aware and keep an eye open. And I think then you have to like make a small study or just have a look in what you can see in your samples and report that back to people that are making legislations or coroners or whatever, just to keep everybody awake of uh, potential yeah, really changes in, in, the, in the market. Yeah. So you know, we only look for, for routine analyses, we only look for three drugs in our drugs and drivers samples. We may take yeah. 10,000 a year. Yeah, of course. It's only three and drugs and you, we're missing so many. Yeah, but you can't, of course, do like a full tox on no. 10,000 samples because that's the thing that we have. So they want to diminish drug use and driving. So it's very nice that they do it that way. But I think as a toxicologist, we have to keep our eyes open and then make other people aware that maybe there are things going on and should, and our procedures or, uh, yeah, our analysis or legislation should be changed yeah. if necessary. And those sort of projects, they take <coughs> ethics you have to do ethics proposals and things like that. And I've recently done a little bit of that. And it's really not that hard. You've just got to try and um, answer the right questions and ensure you get everything de-identified. And it is often not as hard as any of you in the audience. If you want to start a study up, just go on and investigate how you go about it in your local jurisdiction. You could get some really useful information, like Sarah's saying. So um, we've talked about uh, sharing of data a little bit, but we also... The DEA has got some emerging threat reports, which we didn't touch on very much, but they're pretty useful as well. So that's another example of sharing data's data within the community. So we've talked a little bit about NPS, things like that, but going back a little bit, prescriptions really are still the real bread and butter in our laboratories, mostly, I would say, prescription medications. And there's been examples of prescriptions gone bad, like some uh, like benzos are, are being heavily abused in the community, in Australia at least, oxycodone, quetiapine, Another another mm. drug that you wouldn't expect would be subject to abuse, but there's been indications that it is. Of course, pregabalin over the last few years, mm. no one thought that was going to be worthwhile abusing, but high enough dose, it gives you the right effects. Um, so there's others as well. There's baclofen and mm. gabapentin. Yeah, I mean, gabapentin something that now, um, you know, we see in probably about a third of all our um, opioid and other illicit drug deaths. Um, and it's... Uh, only been observed uh, since we included it in our method recently over the last year and a half. Um, so we can actually see that there's actually an issue there. Um, and even though it was described by public health workers on the streets to us saying, hey, you've seen gabapentin. Well, it's only now that we're looking for it. And yeah, we've seen it in a lot of our cases. Um, and it's used, you know, widely for, for, for these situations. It's it's a real nuisance that they are being abused for selfish reasons, of course, because yeah. they're, they're amphoteric compounds and for People like us who use liquid-liquid extractions, mm -hmm. they're just a, a nuisance. Yeah. But now we have to look for them. Yeah, so. I think we're, we're fortunate now with um, uh, instrumentation that's so sensitive. Um, at least some of the theory that we're utilising is to have really um, a non-specific extraction to try to target basic, neutral, acidic, and you know these uh, all compounds you can to run 
for post-mortem casework, for example, um, where you're really trying to capture all these drugs. Um, and that's a method that we're able to implement and actually see gabapentin along with methamphetamine and cocaine and some of these other traditional drugs like opioids. And that's another interesting... I'm sorry, Sarah. Yeah, no. I was also going to comment on that because, indeed, you get the feeling that you really need a very... Um, yeah, it's a screening that you can see all compounds now because we also saw it in talks this, this week in TF and I get the same impression in casework that you have more and more poly, uh, substance abuse. Um, so you have to know all of the compounds that are present in the sample. Uh, and that's, that's very important. And that's another thing that's <coughs> changed is that using these general, uh, one, uh, one method to rule them all, so one method that extracts every drug. That's um, contrary to what people were talking about 10 years ago, where they say, no, you have to do a liquid liquid extraction or an SPE, otherwise you're going to get matrix effects. So it sounds like people are... Yeah, uh, but I, I think you really need the combination of both. Uh-huh. On one hand, you have to have a, a good screening that you can see a lot of compounds, but in some cases, let, let us say drug-facilitated sexual assault, you will still need some really uh, very sensitive methods mm-hmm. in yeah. which you're sure that your matrix effect won't won't have an, an impact yes. uh, on the detectability of some compounds. So I, I think as a as a lab, you will always have to have a combination of, of both. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, uh, like DFC, I think, for DUID casework, which is very heavily <coughs> challenged in court, you know, your uncertainty measurements, you know, making sure you've got tight quantitation is uh, very important. And unless you have a, you know, a deuterated internal for every single compound, you know, um, that may really challenge uh, some of your drugs if you have significant matrix effects. So I think you need to employ both of these yeah. theories. And also just something very practical, if you have to run 10,000 samples, um, a liquid-liquid extraction can be of interest or you need to clean your machine like every mm-hmm. uh, yeah. single... So that's maybe something really practical, but yeah, it is. It's, it's, on, yeah, it's true. So with high-resolution mass spec, um, it's coming very popular. There's many, many talks here uh, nowadays with, with high-resolution mass spec. Will we still need triple quads, do you think? I don't think we will. (laughs) I mean, definitely right now. I think that the speed of triple quads right now um, allow you, you know, even a laboratory that doesn't have high resume spec to screen for hundreds and hundreds of compounds just by the very pure speed of the electronics, being able to monitor that many ions and transitions. So I think for now, definitely, and certainly I think the dynamic linear range, there's lots of things that are uh, superior right now for a triple quad, but you're right, once it catches up. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Luke, actually. I think for a moment, uh, as I already said, sometimes robustness or um, also the, the training skills mm-hmm. of everybody in the lab um, it's sometimes easier to use a triple quad, and I. But I also believe that, like you know, high resolution mass spectrometry will be the the future. But first, for now, I don't see them replaced uh, yeah. that quickly. I, I agree. I mean, we're talking about um, resource issues for you know huge lo- number of casework, and if we have to start now training uh, staff and explaining to the courts what how, how identification of high res mass spec you know, it's justified in this detect, positive detection of a drug in a casework. That's much more difficult than explaining iron ratios of MRMs and retentions. Do you think so? I don't think it is. Well, not, maybe not for someone who's, you know, been using <laughs> a QTOF for over 10 years. But, but, for, but for the average uh, toxicologist at the moment and definitely um, new incomers, I think that it's, uh, 
it's something that over time will become maybe a bit more normal for everybody. Yeah, um, yeah I was being a bit tongue-in-cheek there. Obviously, the, <laughs> the QTOFs, uh, the triple quad instrumentation is always going to be more sensitive than a QTOF because uh, QTOF, you're just letting everything in. Mm -hmm. uh, triple quad, you're isolating a particular mass. You're optimising its fragmentation so you get the biggest response. This um, It will never be uh, as sensitive as a... As a High res mass, but, oh, sorry, the other way around. I yeah. think it's easy for you to say though, because I do remember in 2012 uh, visiting your laboratory and uh, you were using a QTOF for many years like it was just normal. But for me, it was kind of blew my mind. So <laughs> it actually is simpler, I think. If you just use a full scan mode without the Q, it's simpler. It's just like walking up to a GCMS and injecting something. You can cool. use the same method for hundreds of drugs. Sure. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's just our experience. But it took us years to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually not the instrument's fault. I think it's the vendor's fault. They should know that we want to make it easy. <laughs> if they want an instrument to sell, it's got to be easy to use by their staff. It's got to have reports that don't take you months at home to try and work it out or right. Yeah, I think one of the most important thing when, um, of course, choosing instrumentation that sometimes is largely overseen is the uh, usability of the software and mm -hmm. the um, help with reporting mechanisms and making things more efficient and, and, and be able to process an, an, an assay within a few hours. Yeah. And it's super important for a lab to actually implement this technology. But, but I think this has really already developed a lot in yeah. the last couple of years and I think it will go on, so yeah. mm -hmm. bright yeah. future. Okay, we'll, we'll stick with our triple quads for now then. <laughs> um, GCMS. There wasn't much GCMS, was there, today? Did you chuck them out the door? No. I think there's plenty of people who would still uh, really, really could yeah. benefit from GCMS still. Um, but no, I think that uh, just like triple quads, I think there's always a place. I think yeah. there's still a place once until you have an alternative uh, that volatiles. isn't the volatiles. Yes. You know, it's I think just, that yeah. until something replaces both liquid and gas chromatography, um, there's just too many things that only elute with this gas chromatography. Yeah. Of course, GCMS is much simpler. LCMS has still got so many vagaries about it. We don't understand how half of the ionisation process works. There's all these other um, things which you happen to ignore on a, on a triple quad, by the way. But um, I think we have to keep our GCs. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously... It's a much simpler, more honest techniques. Nothing weird can go on in the background. I would agree. I think yeah. you look at Headspace, sorry, Headspace GC, um, you know, FID, for example, for volatiles. I mean, they're some of the best calibration curves and the tightest results you'll ever see on, on, on an instrument and for t uh, some of our tests. Yeah. Well, I can hear um, people filtering in to start the next session. Mm -hmm. uh, so we might have to uh, tidy up our, yeah. our session. Thanks very much, um, Luke and Sarah, for That's joining my pleasure. me. pleasure. And thanks very much to the ICC staff for organising this recording. I um, really appreciate that. And I was I had to go out of their way to suffer, uh, spend some of their lunchtime here. I uh, hope they push the right buttons and this has been recorded. And again, thanks to TF and the Birmingham Organising Committee. And uh, once again, thank you especially to Sarah and Luke for stepping in. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, bye. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.